Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd here at the DriveHubler.com studios. <laughs> so waiting, Jim Trotter of The Athletic going to join us here momentarily. We have him on the line. Sorry about that, listeners out there. <laughs> I was looking at Jimmy. He was looking at me. He was like that Spider-Man meme where it's like, you go. No, you go. No, you. No, you. No, you. So, We're just too friendly. That's what it is. There it is. We're live. We're in action. Jim, you're on the line. How you doing? <laughs> How you doing, guys? Appreciate you, man. I know we were on this gambling Zoom for the NFL a couple days ago, riveting stuff, but <laughs> what was <laughs> your main takeaway? And I know you wrote about this, but of the hypocrisy and maybe the double standards that are included in all of this. Yeah, no question, man. Look, the, the reality here, if we're going to boil it down to the bone, is if you think, if you're concerned about gambling and, and the integrity of the game and all those things, then just have one rule for everybody who receives an NFL paycheck and make that rule that nobody is allowed to gamble on anything, period. Having two separate rules, from my perspective, makes no sense. Rules for players and rules for non-players, it's just ridiculous. So, you know, when you talk to people, what you hear is that, well, yeah, the league doesn't have to collectively bargain this with the players, but if it were to impose a, a full restriction on gambling against the players, if the Players Association would push back, and then you'd probably end up in court again and all those sorts of things. The reality is they came to an agreement some time ago that if, if they allowed the players to bet on everything but NFL, it benefits both groups in terms of revenue share. So if, as has been estimated, the NFL will receive over $2 billion from gambling entities this year, then the players will get a share of that, the owners will get a share of that, and everyone should be happy. But all these little you know, offset rules about you can't place a bet from the locker room, but you can walk across the street off of the premises and place a bet on your phone. Oh, that is so ridiculous, man. It's like one set of rules for everybody. Yeah, Jim, we were when they were breaking it down, I was like, wait, how does this make any sense in any it fashion? It doesn't. We tried to make sense of it. It doesn't. But the other thing I wanted to touch on is, was there anything that maybe surprised you from it? I think for me, one of the gray areas that confused me was them being able to geolocate your phone and being made aware of any NFL bets that are placed from your house, even if it's not you. And I'm like, how do you parse through and figure out who made what bet and if that person had inside information or if they used, like, say if you have a joint account with a family member and they placed a bet on a game, does that get you in trouble? Like, there wasn't enough time to really get into a lot of some of these weeds. But like you said, I think when you don't have a uniform set of rules – it makes things like that very weird to me and very difficult for you to get caught up with, with, which, again, if I was a player, don't come to my house and bet. Like, all phones must be, like, thrown into a bin at the door and, and just not used for the night or something because, to me, that's kind of a, a, a murky water to be in. Yeah, look, the, the reality is that these professional sports leagues know more about these players than maybe these players know about themselves. They have security. They have tie-ins with, you know, former FBI folks law enforcement folks and whatnot, where they're on top of it. And the thing that struck me in that conversation as well was, um, you know, Sarah, uh, Sabrina Perel saying that, um, that in the partnerships with these gambling sites and whatnot, they had integrity protection, which means that the sites are working with the league to make sure that they can identify who is placing bets and when and where and that sort of thing. And all of that, to me, is like Big Brother. That's kind of scary. But again, <laughs> the players have signed off on it. So I'm not sure you being, you know, I don't want to say upset, but having concerns about it or me having concerns about it, it really doesn't matter because the players have signed off on it simply for the sake of that additional revenue, which, which increases their salaries. Jim, I agree with you that I feel like just one sweeping rule for everybody that would be in place and emphasized to the umpteenth degree would fix all of these problems. But when I'm, I'm reading your piece and I'm reading the quotes out of that press conference or media availability on the gambling matter, it, none of it, it makes make any, any sense. sense. <laughs> none, of it, none of it makes any sense. <laughs> and on top of it, like I get one of the quotes uh, from the committee and from their members within the NFL's legal department that, well, it's never going to change with non-NFL players being able to bet on any games whatsoever. And it's like, okay, that's great that you have that policy, but 
how is that fixing the root issue of Calvin Ridley was supposed to be a poster child for don't do this, even though I always thought Pete Rose and the Chicago Black Sox were ingrained in sports culture of, hey, don't do this if you're a professional athlete. But Ridley was supposed to be the modern day version of, hey, don't do this. And it still hasn't stuck. So so from from your takeaways from this, how are they not losing the plot with worried about too many things versus the biggest matter at hand in my mind, which is players can't figure out this betting policy? Well, I don't think it's necessary that they can't figure it out. I think there was a lot of ignorance and and um, about it and a feeling that maybe to some young players that, you know, it's really not as serious as it's being made out to be. Because I didn't know, even as someone who follows this league, like you can't place a bet from your hotel room if you're on the road. You know, that I'm like, really? So that's considered that you're on their time, work time. So therefore, you can't. That's considered work premises at that point. So I think what what the um, what the league and the players' association have done now is <clears throat> they have done a better job of explaining this to players and emphasizing this. And here's the other thing: and the league admitted this during that Zoom call. They want us to know about the investigation mm-hmm. and who's being disciplined because they want to use that as a deterrent to educate these players that ignorance is not a defense. And if you screw up, we're going to come after you. And, and, you know, I think we all have to agree that, yeah, this has gotten the player's attention based on the suspensions that we have had to this point. So I understand why they're doing that. And, and, and to some degree, I think that is smart. What I think is not smart is that you don't have a uniform policy for everyone, because I, I truly don't understand why you can say, well, I know why, because I've been told, League employees are not unionized, so therefore they can't fight this the way that the players could. Um, And so therefore, to me, when you say to employees, you are not allowed to bet on anything, period, exclamation point, end of story, nothing, to me that just seems so overreaching on the league's part, and yet employees can't do anything about it, again, because they're not unionized, and they simply have to accept that. This is... The NFL, in a nutshell. <laughs> I feel like they're always kind of getting in their own way, and it comes down to money. I think whenever we ask these questions, Jim, on these Zoom calls or press conferences, they cannot just come out and say it, but we all know it usually pertains to money. Now, It always pertains to money. Yes, exactly. That, that's, they say that the, the integrity of the game is paramount. The money made off of the integrity of the game is paramount. And so... Kind of pivoting away from the league perspective, we have a situation here in Indianapolis with Isaiah Rogers Sr. He allegedly violated these gambling rules. Now, from some of the reports we saw, the stuff that he's being alleged to doing is pretty extensive, and, and it seems like he really did not make very good decisions if this is all true. can Do you think that his career is in jeopardy, considering that he isn't you know, a Calvin Ridley, he isn't a 1,400-yard receiver, and they're... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If these things are true as alleged, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can see the league making an example of them, and, and the league has no qualms with that. Again, they, they want to get their hands around this, and they want to make sure that players know that there are serious consequences if you violate this policy. And so if you have a player, and it is proven that almost like he just thumbed his nose at the policy, you know. Um, trust me, they're not going to have any any compassion or empathy or anything else. They're going to move on um, because it's bigger than any one player. Um, and Calvin Ridley should feel fortunate that he is back in the league uh, because I'm telling you, as this thing goes forward and we have more and more suspensions, if it continues to happen, I don't think they're going to be as tolerant as, as, as they have shown to this point. My, so, go ahead. Yeah, so my only follow-up, and I wanted to ask this to them. So how do they know, and maybe you've asked around, how do they know if the information is being retained? Because to me, when they showed us the PowerPoint, I was looking at it and I was like, this is like every college class I've ever had. As soon as you pull up a PowerPoint, <laughs> I am zoned out. Like, I don't want to see this. This is boring. This person, I don't know, is going to come in here and just waste my time. But <laughs> obviously, it's very, yeah, it's very important, they, right? Yeah, but here's the thing. That's on you. No, you know, I agree. I they, agree. They, yeah, they I give agree. you the information. There has to be a level of, of, of accountability. So I can't give players a pass for 
you know, using ignorance as a defense when when you have been spoken to repeatedly about it and they have given you the information. I might not like it, but if it is a working condition for playing in the NFL, I better adhere to it or else I'm not going to be playing in the NFL. I agree. So that's on the player. What do things look like from here? Because to go back to our original conversation, like I, I agree with you, Jim, that I don't think it's I don't blame the players for betting on the NBA in a hotel room or betting on a college basketball game in a practice facility. Like that's weird semantics that like I don't I don't see how that's jeopardizing the integrity of the NFL in situations like that. Where I've had the larger issue is Isaiah Rogers case of betting on NFL games after Ridley got a year for it. And that's the part I don't get. What does this look like from a policy standpoint in an ideal world for the NFL where they're able to stabilize all of this outside of no more suspensions and everybody gets it. Like, well, what are we looking at from an enforcement and a process? Because it seemed like from your story, there were other suspensions that could potentially be looming. Um, you don't, like I said in my story, you don't have to put your ear too firmly to the ground to hear that, that more is coming. So, um, again, that's why I say to you, it's ridiculous to have two policies. If, as they said, remember, when Sabrina was asked whether or not the policy would ever change for league employees, meaning non-players, she said she couldn't foresee that. Why? Because the policy has worked so far in terms of protecting the integrity of the game. Well, if you feel the best way to protect the integrity of the game is by having a zero gambling policy for your employees, why wouldn't you want that for the players as well? Why not have it for everybody? And that's why I said it doesn't make sense to me. When you start making these cutouts and provisions, that's where you start to get in trouble because I'll ask this. Have we heard of any player? I'm, I'm sorry, non-player being suspended for gambling? I'm, try, I'm, I'm going through it in my mind now. I've not heard of a league employee being suspended or, or fired for, for gambling. Maybe you guys have. A couple of Detroit but, coaches maybe. I believe they, they yeah. were kind of caught up in that, but not really like names and things like that. Yeah, so for me, um, that's the answer is to simply have a zero tolerance. So, Jim, before you get out of here, I know you are at the QB Summit, and it's in conjunction with the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Can you just tell us a little bit about that event and maybe those who aren't aware of it and how important it is and why you're out there doing your thing? Yeah, really since 2018 was the first year the league partnered with the Black College Football Hall of Fame to have a quarterback summit. And that was at the time where we were hearing that there weren't blacks on the offensive side of the football as coordinators and quarterback coaches and whatnot. And so their whole thing, the narrative at that time, was to create a pipeline to show that there are blacks who coach quarterbacks, who are offensive coordinators, who can be head coaches, all that, which is all a joke to me anyway. But having said that, this is the fifth year of that. And, and uh, two years ago, they started a similar program for aspiring general managers. And so here's my thing, and then this is partly I'm giving you a preview of what I'm writing, is that over the last three years we've seen the NFL go from never having had a black club president to now having five. We've seen it go from having one black general manager to having eight now. And yet during these last five years, we have not seen a single increase in the number of black head coaches in the NFL. So I'm trying to get someone to explain to me why we would see these increases in inclusivity as it relates to front office positions, but we're not seeing it on the field. And I'm going to shock you guys with this. I can't get a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I appreciate your time, Jim. Safe travels, my man. I'm sure we'll see each other down the line. Okay, guys. Have a good day. Thanks, Jim. And that's Jim Trotter, my coworker at The Athletic, covers the NFL as a national columnist, always has an opinion, always has a stance, but it's usually backed up with a lot of research. He's been around for a long time. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Welcome back to Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison behind the ones in. Two's happy draft day to you. Pacers turn tonight with that seventh pick, something that they still hold. However, Pacers back in action by the trade market. Los Angeles Lakers have acquired the 40th pick from the Indiana Pacers for pick 47 and cash. 
Sources tell ESPN per Adrian Wojnarowski. Dang, I thought LeBron was in that trade. <laughs> I know. Uh, the, the way I reacted to it in break, I got a hard time for it. You would the, think LeBron was in the trade. The push notification said the Lakers have traded with the Pacers. And I go, Pacers trade, Pacers trade, Pacers trade. And then it's that, which again. It was literally for to move back seven spots for a $5 bill, a $2 bill, rare. And some cash. <laughs> some cash. Tony East joins us now. Locked on Pacers, WTHR, Forbes, you know the works. Sports Illustrated. SI.com. Tony, I know Eddie already stole my joke, so it's fine. It's what it is. It's, it's, it's mine and Eddie's favorite thing to say. To quote Brian Windhorst, what does it all mean, Tony? What does it mean? <laughs> Are we done? Are we done with trades? How much cash really is it? Oh, what do we know so far? Let's start with the cash, Tony. I was James is like concerned. We're talking about chess. We're talking about Rocket League. Eddie's making you guys play Justin Bieber. Something <laughs> silly is always going on when I'm hanging out with you guys. <laughs> I yeah, forgot about that. A little that. bit of a minor trade here. Not that, you know, it's funny that people are talking about the Lakers Pacers thinking about pick 17 and moves in the middle of the first round that this is what we hear about. But, yes, pick 40 the Pacers got yesterday uh, in a little swap with the Nuggets is now going to the Lakers, pick 47 that the Lakers have their second rounder coming to the Pacers, and the Pacers also getting cash in this. The Lakers uh, traded some cash to the Magic earlier this season in the trade. They have like 4.4-something million left in cash they can trade this year. Pacers presumably getting some of that, if not all. So we'll see how much it actually is that cash can be used for any number of things, I suppose, that the Pacers decide. It's not really clear what cash considerations always ends up uh going toward, but that's the trade for a Pacers team that doesn't really have the room to make lots of picks. I suppose if you can get cash instead of nothing, you do it, but not not the, the thing that fans are calling everybody and texting all their friends about, certainly. Does this mean that we can finally lay to rest, at least for this draft cycle, Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, Lakers rumors? Does that mean we can finally <laughs> take it off the table? Uh, I never I will take anything off the table. <laughs> that was the first thing that came out of my head when I saw Pacers and Lakers. I was like, how is this the trade that happens after a full year of Pacers-Lakers chatter, right? No Russ, no Buddy, no Miles after all that. But, it, yeah, it's uh, very, as minor as moves can come. I think the cash should be used for the deal or no deal game. <laughs> Every fan would want to play if they could win millions of dollars playing Dealer No well, Deal. Let, let's, let's, let's spice it up Key a Bank bit. doesn't even have to pony up in that yeah, that's scenario. That's what I'm saying, just, man. They, they, they got the Pacers, the cash consideration. You want fans in seats? You do that, and it works. There's my free idea. You could, you could pay for Howie for, for like a couple games even I'm as well. You, Go man, full I'm giving out with it. awesome ideas right now. I should probably patent these things, but I'm a man of the people, so I'm putting them out there. Um, <laughs> Tony, when we look at this draft, obviously the biggest question mark for the Pacers is number seven. Do you keep it? Do you move it? You know, if you do keep it, who do you choose? And for the sake of the argument, what do you think it would take for them to say, okay, we 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 should move on from this and we found a guy that can help us win now? Like, would it be number seven plus another asset, Chris Duarte, or number seven plus 22nd, I mean, 26th pick? Like, how do you view that? Yeah, I think that they have a lot of stuff to trade that, like, isn't clear how it's in their long-term future, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they have the two backup bigs and Smith and Jackson. It's not clear which one of them will be their backup big going forward, if either of them are, right? Maybe if they really want to be good next year, Daniel Tice. They have three younger forwards that it's not clear if any of them will have solid minutes next year in Jordan Wara, Aaron Neesmith, and Chris Duarte, although Neesmith likely at least has a role next year, right? They have all these later picks this year and an extra first next year that if you're trying to win, it's hard to figure out exactly how those young players will fit into your team. So any of that stuff on top of seven seems like what it would be to me for them to go get something like that or move around or do whatever they want to do because – you know, that has been talked about. Like, I think Chris Haynes and Brian Winter are supported on the same day. They're, like, potentially looking for a starting quality wing. If they can get that using seven and some of their extra stuff that they've acquired along the way via, you know, the Brogdon trade, the Lever trade, the little stuff they've done the last couple days, then perhaps they look at that because, you know, we, we saw last year how good Tyrese Halliburton is and how good this Pacers team can be at their best. 
Tony, you described the trade the Pacers made moments ago with the Lakers as a, a minor of minor trades. And I don't necessarily disagree with you because <laughs> there's not a ton of high value moving there. They moved back seven spots and there's an undetermined amount of cash. Bobby Marks had said that on Twitter that the Lakers had about $4.4 million available to them if they wanted yep. to utilize in trade. So obviously it would be somewhere from that stockpile of cash to utilize in moves like this. And you commonly see teams buy into the first or second round when they are as cap strong or as you know in tough quarters in that regard to the roster constraints like the Lakers are. When you look at this trade, though, as minor, and you look at yesterday's trade with the Nuggets, what was your description of that, given that once you clarified that news and other outlets clarified that news, we knew a 2024 first was coming, but it wasn't going to be the Nuggets, which I know concerned a lot of people, that it would be their pick that might be coming here. Yeah, the clarity on that was really important, right? Because the the pick the Pacers got in this trade, which is is going to ultimately, I think, come from OKC in a, in a maybe now four team trade if the Lakers are getting forty. But either way, um, it, it it was described as the worst of the, some picks that the Nuggets had from this trade, which was Houston's, Utah's, uh, Oklahoma City's, and the Clippers' worst first round pick next year. Whichever one of those picks has the highest number would be the one sent to the Pacers. And if the Nuggets is included in that worst-of calculation, they just won the championship. Their pick's 27 this year. That pick doesn't project to be very good next year. So why would you trade 29 and 32 for 40 and, like, 28 or something? That doesn't make much sense. But if you remove the Nuggets pick from that, which is ultimately the case, the Nuggets pick is not involved, then you're talking about the best team of two lottery teams in Houston and uh, Utah and an Oklahoma City team that's in the lottery after the plan, and a Clippers team that rests players all the time and lost in the first round and lost in the play-in two years ago. Like, maybe they could be good, and they're likely the best team of that crew. But, you know, that, this year that pick would be 20, right? That's pretty good draft equity to move up for a, to get from the Nuggets who want to get a first this year. So that one felt minor at first, but when you really think about it, especially because the Pacers can't bring in five rookies this year, getting what could be a better first next year is pretty smart business. So, Tony, in my opinion, I think that the Thompson Twins will not be on the board at seven, either one of them. But if one of them drops, are they good enough to say, okay, we understand fit and what we want to kind of puzzle piece into this team, or are they good enough to just pick them because I, feel, I believe both of them are dynamic athletes and could have some of that, that star power, you know, if they reach their ceiling? Yeah, I think they're good enough myself. Um, and that's mostly because I really value shot creation as a skill for NBA teams. And I think it's very obvious, like, just look at the Pacers. You know, when they had Brogdon and Sabonis running their team, they had to get creative to create good shots all the time. And they were. They had a decent offense with those guys. But as soon as they get a high-level creator in Halliburton, their offense just instantly takes off and looks so potent every single night. Like, when they had their best creators of the last – of the Kevin Pritchard era, really – uh, Oladipo at his best and Halliburton at his best, that's when the Pacers have been at their best, right? So I really value shot creation, and I think both Thompson twins will be able to do that at the pro level. Amin looks like he'll be the better of the two at it, but Asar is still super athletic and a really great cutter and can do stuff with Devon at hands, and he's a little bit better of a shooter too, which might honestly make him the better complimentary piece if he is available for the Pacers. They're going to be big question marks tonight in general. Like the OTE guys who went pro last year, uh, Gene Montero and Don Barlow, neither of them got picked after some projections that they might. And Barlow had a nice season for the Spurs on a two-way deal. Montero didn't even stick in the NBA. So there's some questions about the league and what those players actually being on a roster, what they'll look like and, and all sorts of stuff like that. I think they'll be pretty good, but we'll learn a lot about how teams feel about them uh, tonight, certainly, and as their career progresses about that league in general. So I can say this now because I'm not on the beat and <laughs> – I'm glad I don't envy you tonight. Well, last year I felt I, I think it was pretty not obvious, but it was pretty safe to say Benedict Mather was going to be the pick at six. I think that that was a safe assumption. But does it feel different this year, considering all of the options and obviously being a spot further back? Uh, yeah, it does feel like a little bit different, and. I think the other difference is that there's two just amazing fits this year, right, in, in Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks, which I think really kind of jumbles it up that, if, if, you know, if it gets to them at seven and both of those guys are there, there'll be a lot of shrugging from people who just kind of go, well, these guys both fit great. You'd understand if they pick either one for different reasons. Like, it makes a ton of sense. So it's not as 
clear, obvious who maybe the favorite would be, if it even is those guys. There's other guys who would make some sense. And there's already questions about maybe Scoot Henderson's going number two. Like, what's that going to do to all the rest of the picks? Where's Kim Whitmore going to go? What are the Pistons going to do? Like, there's a lot more questions above the Pacers this year, I think, than last year, where last year it was just kind of like, which one will go four and five between Keegan Murray and Jaden Ivey, right? I was sitting right next to you, James. You know, there wasn't as much order intrigue last year as it feels like there is this year. So I think that those two guys would be the ones that are talked about the most today, but it is definitely a little less clear where kind of the lines of demarcation are than it was last year. Tony East with us here on the Fan Midday Show. You can follow him on Twitter at Tony R. East. Covers the Pacers for Sports Illustrated's Pacers site, as well as Forbes, WTHR, and of course the Locked on Pacers podcast. Tony, the discussion yesterday after that Nuggets trade was the amount of picks the Pacers still had going from five picks to four, and then this trade today still keeps them at four picks, albeit moving down from 40 to 47. Roster space, I believe they have three roster spots, so kind of a two-part question. If I'm correct on that, does that mean necessarily that they are done with moves? because they would have three roster spots available for four potential picks? Or the other elephant in the room, and for fans that don't know this, how does the two-way ability impact at all what they can do with four picks versus feeling pigeonholed to just take three? Yeah, they have new two-way contract slot this year, so every team has three of them, actually. So in theory, had the Pacers made all five of the picks they originally had, they could have put two guys on two-way deals and had their three first-round picks and kept everybody, but... That's it. That's the whole summer, right? They no longer have roster spots to sign anybody or, you know, they could have, I guess, made trades with the same number of players out and in. But, you know, that's not likely what their goals are, given that they have cap space that they almost have to use, given what the new CBA structure is with the salary floor, too. So there was just no way they were going to make five picks. They made that abundantly clear. And I still think there's no way they're going to make four picks, um, even with these new two-way slots. And now they're down to 47. It's more possible, right? Like, I don't know what the – there's no cut, real cutoff, but there's a line in the second round somewhere of, you know, that's where you go from maybe a roster spot to a two-way slot, and I think 47 is probably behind it. But either way, it, it seems untenable for the Pacers who want to make the postseason next year to use all of these picks to, you know, have rookies on their team. I think they want to be better next year than they were last year with 35 wins. They were talking about 45, and Halliburton has said on the record multiple times he wants to be in the playoffs. He's never been there despite being an all-star level player. So, yeah, they are down to four now from five. They've gotten some assets along the way to do it. But I think that they still would like to pick up some more future stuff and instead try to add some talent for this year because the roster spot crunch makes it difficult with only three available spots. No more than a second apart from one another. The following tweets were made by myself and James Boyd. Here's James. Tony just tweeted this while talking to us about the Pacers on 107.5 The Fan. That's my goat emoji. And mine, he's tweeting and talking. What a machine. Because Tony East (laughs) just shared with his Twitter following, and you follow him on Twitter at Tony R. East, $4.35 million in cash is what's moving from the Lakers to the Pacers in this trade. The fact that it was nearly all of the 4.4 Bobby Marks projected, does that surprise you at all? I think if uh, I mean it's probably some rounding. I don't know. It's probably all of what sure. the Lakers had left. I think they sent the. I think I said this already, but I think they sent the rest of the magic uh, back at the trade deadline mm-hmm. and some the, the Mo, Bamba, Mo Bamba trade. I think I can't remember what the Lakers magic trade was, but uh, yeah, I think it's probably all the rest they had to give up. And you know, cash resets every year. It's either use it or lose it. So. I suppose if this is what the Lakers felt like is the best thing they could do, that's great. And there's a cap on what you can receive, too. So get it while you can, I suppose. But, it, it, you know, those, those, they're just weird trades because it's hard to, for kind of fans to think about it because you can't really see what the cash does. But, hey, getting the most you can from a team, I suppose, is something to to say, hey, they did it or something. But, uh, yeah, from a, from a basketball perspective, it's, a, it's still a very minor move. So basically – Tony is saying his headline is going to be Pacers swindle the Lakers for $4.3 million. I don't think you can swindle any team when both picks are in the 40s. Sure. Just work with me. Work with me. I'm working on my engagement. I'm trying to get you some clicks here, Tony. But uh, in all seriousness, does that factor into what they can do in free agency, just having that, more, that much more money on hand? I, I suppose it doesn't count as salary cap money, but if it's money that, as a team, you're willing to spend on something, I don't, from Fax a new machine. player to a new copier, that's great news, I suppose. Uh, 
yeah, if, if, if you weren't willing to spend it before, but now you have it, maybe that's good. I mean, it's hard to, again, it's really hard to piece together what teams do and need with cash. So they literally cannot use it on like salary cap? I, I don't know how that works where like the funds are split up. Like maybe, like if it just goes into like the Pacers slush fund and they can distribute it to anything, whether that's players, coaches, has to be basketball. Like I haven't actually dug into what cash can or can't be. Like maybe, maybe it's a copier, maybe it's Nudo. I don't know. I was thinking that. it's Moneyball style where we're just filling the soda machine for the next three seasons, you know, or Billy Bean style. I don't know. You know what? There's I not th- a lot of interesting ways to talk about. <laughs> I think they should just tell Wimby, hey, we got an extra 4.3 That's great. for you waiting, yep. <laughs> waiting in the back end. <laughs> Maybe they'll reimburse you for your t-shirt investment, perhaps, yes, with some of that 4.3. Sh- surely Victor Wimbanyamba will not be making that much money you know, to start off his <laughs> NBA career. Um, in all seriousness, Tony, the one thing I wanted to ask as well is – how much do you think Tyrese Halliburton factors into whatever decision they make? Like, is he someone who's going to be included and thought of whether the pick is traded number seven, picked at number seven, who's picked at number seven? Yeah, I would imagine that he has a lot of say. Like, we've been seeing him at all of these pre – not all, most of these pre-draft workouts sitting among the scout executive front office crew, getting his eyes on everything, which – I think it's smart if you're the Pacers, right? Like, you know, you were around last year, James, when there was talk about how much Halliburton, you know, talked about wanting Natherin and that picture of them in the hotel room from before the draft. Like, having your guy who sets your sets your franchise in motion and is kind of the face of the team and sets the identity involved in these decisions, maybe not the final say guy, but involved in these decisions sure seems smart to me. You know, he knows what the team needs and how any new player can amplify the group. He's only 23, too, so... This player could be his friend as he grows into an adult for a while as well. So I think it's great business to have him involved. I don't know how much influence he will truly have, but it seems smart to me, especially because everybody's described him as a basketball junkie. It's great for the Pacers that he's been in market all summer watching all this stuff and involved. I think that that's great. And and we've heard from Ryan Carr, their VP of player personnel, that, you know, they're that young prospects are just, you know, psyched about Halbert and they talk about him. They know his deal and his game and, how he's elevated the Pacers. I think that's great for the franchise that they have somebody of that stature who kind of has that allure on other players. Well, I'll tell you what, I would say that about every team that they're sending me. Oh, I love this player. He's fantastic. He's great. You should hire me. You should pick me and pay me a lot of money to play basketball. I'm not doubting that. So, so if, if you were doing a draft workout for the Wizards, you have to go in there and be like, I've always been a big Denny Avdia fan. Oh, it'll be Corey Cri- Crisper. Wait. <laughs> Kisper, I'm sorry. Does that mean that Brandon Miller's trying to force his way to the Clippers? Is that what's happening right now? Is that what the end goal was there? Tony East joins us here on the Fan Midday Show. Tony, the rumor Mill is Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks to the Pacers at seven. Let's play the game of the Thompsons go before that. They're off the board. When you look at further down the list of players the Pacers worked out that might not be mocked at seven, but a couple spots below that, take for example Cam Whitmore, Grady Dick, Jordan Hawkins. When you look at just names that are there below where the Pacers are at, is there it feels like it's so set in stone right now. Jairus Walker, yeah, of course, no doubt. Or Taylor Hendricks, no doubt. When you look past that, though, and perhaps this is just smoke screens or pacers keeping it close to the chest, who amongst the players past seven might make the most sense in your mind if they don't go with Hendricks or Walker? Yeah, Cam Whitmore's got a lot of upside. You know, it's very rare that a prospect, especially one of his age, has a combination of athleticism and power and all yeah, it's just unbelievable when you watch him and he's got a lot of work to do on his shot and his defense and his general awareness, but I think he's a really fascinating prospect and no one really knows where he's going to go. He's sort of an interesting talent in this one, but you know, I think he's a little duplicative skill set wise with Benedict Mather. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but at the same time, his upside might be so high that any team might just go, you know what, let's do it. Let's try it. So he's one, of course, keep an eye on. You said Grady Dick. I mean, I don't think he's quite good enough to go at seven, but if, if anybody picks him, it'll make a ton of sense. He's the best shooter in the draft and can make plays with the ball when he's run off the line. That's a great player to have for any team on the offensive end of the court. And I love Anthony Black. doesn't make a lot of sense for the Pacers. We'll see where the movement is for him if anybody actually wants to end up with him. And I think that's kind of the top 10, 11 players. After that, there's a little line before the Hawkinses, the Keontae Georges the you know of the world. But – uh, there are a couple names that could sneak in there, but the fact that none of them are great fits are so appealing. I mean, Whitmore is, I guess, I suppose, but also kind of reinforces the whole Hendricks-Walker debate.
Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. So, my other question would be to have you been able to track down any of Victor Womanyamba's siblings, just in case. You know, we want to just get in early now. <laughs> but no, I'm joking about that. But I do think that you made a good point about um, Taylor Hendricks and, and, and also, you know, looking at other players that could be considered beyond Taylor Hendricks and Jairus Walker. But focus on those two in particular. Which one do you lean more toward if you had to make the pick? I would pick Jairus Walker myself. Like I said earlier, I don't think either of them are bad picks. Like it'd be very, very easy to understand why either of them would be the pick. And they're both wonderful defensive players. I kind of grade their defense out as pretty even as they enter the, the pros. I think Hendricks can maybe hold up a little bit better away from the basket, but Walker might be a little better you know, with his power around the rim in the pros. We'll see. But either way, the reason I would lean Walker is, you know, especially if you look at his high school tape, I think he's got a little more offensive upside as a creator type, whether that's catching it in the short roll and making a pass or – just eventually being a guy who can do more with the ball in his hands, maybe not be a creator, but just be a great connector. Hendricks is the much better shooter right now, at least. We'll see where that ends up going in the pro level. But the fact that there's a little more upside on Walker's game in the offensive end is what separates it for me, even though, again, like a 3 and D floor prospect is just fantastic in the NBA these days, and Hendricks looks like he's going to be that. So, again, I've been making a lot of jokes about Victor Womanyamba, but in all seriousness, <laughs> how – cool is it him holding the baseball my goodness oh yes that was unbelievable you mean the marble <laughs> sorry i just want to make sure i'm sure we're looking at the same picture <laughs> but you look at how the game has been more globalized in recent years especially in our generation how much do you think the nba benefits from having another guy come from overseas and b i would imagine one of the faces of the league from the start you already have Jokic, who i believe is the best player in the world right now you have Embiid, you have Giannis, and then now you have another player entering the fold who can be um a household name yeah quite the global game right now which i think is is just awesome for the nba the way that this is trending and like there's been a lot of i heard this chatter around the mvp debates too is like who's gonna be the next american mvp because Embiid, Jokic, keep winning. Giannis is in the mix. Now, when Benyama's here to potentially be in the mix. Luka. Yeah. Like maybe, yeah, Luka, exactly. Like, the overseas guys are just near the top or dominating the league right now. I suppose Tatum is probably the, the best guess, if you had to say, but it doesn't really matter because these overseas guys are just better right now. And, you know, it's great for the game that it's expanding globally, and, and no two of them are from the exact same country. Now you're adding France in. you got Greece, Serbia, Slovenia, Nigeria for all these overseas guys. Like, it's great for the game's expansion globally, and I think that you know, there's a lot of talk in the finals about ratings for some reason, but, like, who, who cares? All these people in Europe and overseas are watching these games too. The NBA is in a great spot, and another dominant foreign prospect, I think, will continue to, to push that forward. Tony, last thing on my end. With the seventh pick, do the Pacers, A, wind up making that selection, and if you feel that there's a chance they don't, is the only path to bringing in a wing via trade in your mind with the seventh pick being moved? Via trade, yeah, probably at least the caliber of wing that I think fans have thought about a lot this summer. Like, it's possible they could sign somebody. They've got significant space for just – I don't know that they're connected to these guys just looking at the best wings, but like your, you know, your Kuzmas, your Harrison Barnes, whatever. Like, they could sign one of those guys, but – Via trade specifically, yeah, seven's their best chance to get a guy that people would go, oh, wow, the Pacers got this guy. They're going to be a serious threat this year. He's Tony East. You can follow him on Twitter, at Tony R. East. Enjoy the draft, my friend. Thank you, as always, for making time for us. And uh, keep us on those nuggets with cash considerations and specifics <laughs> on trade picks because it's always good to have that clarity. Let me know if you All want right, me to come, come crash the party. I still know where it is. So <laughs> James uh, has T-shirts to give away. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Again, you can follow him on Twitter, at Tony R. East. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. 
Still here in the DriveHubler.com studio, hanging out with Eddie Garrison, Jimmy Cook here on draft day. Exciting time for the Pacers. And we have my guy, Brett Siegel, covers the NBA at large for Clutch Points. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing good. I'm probably doing a little better than you because I know you have to keep up with all these trades and moves and things like that. But I'll start with the big picture move from last night and Marcus Smart is no longer a Boston Celtic. What did you think of that decision and how it, I guess, plays out for not only Boston, but Memphis? Obviously, Boston ended up with Chris Ospersingas. Right. This was a move that shocked many around the league. A lot of people saw Kristaps Porzingis being the target of the Celtics leading up to this year's draft. They were looking to get a deal done with the Wizards, and there was that three-team deal in place early yesterday afternoon where Kristaps Porzingis was going to be going to the Celtics, Malcolm Brogdon was going to be going to the Clippers, and the Wizards were going to be receiving some salary dump and a draft pick or two. That ultimately fell through because of Malcolm Brogdon's injury status and the concerns with his long-term injury status with his elbow. So the Celtics quickly pivoted. They were able to get a deal done before the midnight deadline on Porzingis' player option contract. They got a deal done. It was a three-team trade involving the Memphis Grizzlies' Marcus Smart, the surprising name that winds up going to the Grizzlies, Tyus Jones going to the Wizards. From the Celtics' standpoint, they got everything that they wanted. They get the big man and that that secondary star, really, that they can put next to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown with Porzingis in the front court fills a lot of needs that Al Horford and Robert Williams were not able to do through the years. And then when you look at what the Wizards were able to accomplish, Tyus Jones, a great point guard that can immediately become their starting point guard, depending on what they do with guys like Monte Morris and Chris Paul. From the Memphis' standpoint, they gave up a really good point guard who has consistently been winning games for them when John Morant was not available, and they gave up two first-round picks to get Marcus Smart, a guy who is very high on their wish list. They had been targeting him through the years, so they get their guy, but it comes at a very big price. This was a very surprising trade for many around the league. We were looking at the numbers yesterday for what Boston could move to match salaries with what Chris Stapp's going to be making this year, and Marcus Smart was obviously a name we threw out there, but I didn't think that that might be the direction they went to. From what you've seen and covered on this particular story Brett it seems like Marcus Smart was blindsided by all accounts he did not expect to get moved I mean I know that's life in professional sports but how difficult was this decision knowing that with Brogdon being off the table with the injury concerns that Smart or somebody of the like from salary's perspective was going to be the player that had to be gone Yeah, it was certainly a big decision for the Celtics to make and one that they didn't want to make. That's why they originally were looking to move Malcolm Brogdon, the 2023 six-man of the year. And he he was a great piece for them this past season. Brogdon had a huge role with the Celtics. It was a big reason why they were able to reach the Eastern Conference Finals again. But the concerns with that injury and teams not showing a willingness to want to accept him because of his injury concerns, that force the Celtics hand basically and operating on a tight window of having to get a deal done with Porzingis's player option deadline coming up and then him not wanting to extend that deadline with the Wizards it, it kind of forced Boston's hand at this point it was either give up Marcus Smart and gather these first round picks and get your guy in Porzingis or you don't get any deal at all and you're going to have to figure out all these massive cap decisions with Grant Williams being a restricted free agent Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum having those extensions coming up. And with the new CBA guidelines and the new financial restraints coming in for a tax-paying team like the Celtics, this was a move that they had to make a decision on right away, and ultimately they did by sending Smart to the Grizzlies. Brett, to pivot away from that and look at the draft itself, obviously we know Victor Womanyamba is going to go number one, but there is some chatter at number two. Not to give away your mock draft, but who do you lean more toward personally, Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller? And if so, why? So I'll answer this in multiple parts because there's a lot to talk about here with the Charlotte Hornets at number two. Personally, I favor Brandon Miller. I think that he's a better long-term fit next to LaMelo Ball. I think that with Scoot Henderson next to Ball, there's just going to be a clash of egos and a clash of flashiness there. Could it still work? Absolutely. Scoot Henderson has proven that he can play off the ball and he's going to be a much better three-point shooter than people are anticipating it being. But they have that guard position figured out where the Charlotte Hornets really need talent is out on the wing. Brandon Miller, a multidimensional scorer who can also impact the game defensively. I think that that just makes sense from a fit and talent perspective. But there has been a lot of chatter in recent days that Scoot Henderson 
could be their pick tonight. And, and that's been reported this morning throughout the afternoon. There's obviously been a lot of chatter about Brandon Miller being the favorite. And I've even reported on that, that sources have told me that Brandon Miller has been the favorite favorite for the Charlotte Hornets. But the catch here is that this is coming from rival teams. Nobody at all in the reporting landscape has had any insight into what the Hornets, Michael Jordan, Mitch Kupchak, that front office, nobody knows exactly what they're thinking. They've kept this very internal, similar to what we saw with the Orlando Magic last year, where a lot of people thought that they were leaning towards Jabari Smith Jr. A lot of rival teams thought the same. And then ultimately, Pio Bancaro was their guy from the very start. So we could be seeing a very similar situation develop here between Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller. Ultimately, at this point, it wouldn't be shocking if Henderson does go number two based on what has come out. But this is a decision that the Hornets are still mulling to this point, and they may not have a decision until right before they're on the clock. Going to throw it to Jimmy here real quick, but I do want to just point out that maybe Brandon Miller saying that Paul George is his GOAT (laughs) and MJ is just a regular guy may not have helped his draft stock. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, Jimmy, your thoughts on the rest of the draft? I mean, if that's the reason that happened, then there's a good reason if you're a Charlotte fan to be happy that MJ's out of majority (laughs) ownership before that petty that we can't evaluate talent based on that. But all you took that personally. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hold on. I'm right, right right back in the last dance. Seventh pick for the Pacers, your evaluation of what's there, Jairus Walker, Taylor Hendricks, perhaps a Thompson twin falls to them. Let's say for the sake of discussion, they keep the seventh pick. Where do you see from the different optionality the Pacers would have at seven, to quote Kevin Pritchard? (laughs) At this point, I would be extremely shocked if both Thompson twins fall out of the top five. I've heard that Amen Thompson is the Houston Rockets guy if he's there at number four. And following him up at number five, the Detroit Pistons, I just don't see any scenario where they would pass up on Asar Thompson. He's the best player in this draft at this position, at the fifth position, that is. And the Pistons need a guy on the wing. Asar Thompson, in my mind, is their guy. So we look at who could be available for the Indiana Pacers. Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks are the two guys that I'm really looking at. This team needs a forward. They've been very vocal about wanting to find a sturdy power forward alongside Miles Turner in this front court. And right now, I've mocked Jairus Walker to them. From what I've heard, he's been the guy with the most voices in their front office, the guy that they've been paying the most attention to, a bruiser-like forward that can really get after it defensively. He shows a lot of promise as being able to play both on the wing and in the low post as a 6'8 power forward big body to move and when you look at Taylor Hendricks I also like that fit for the Pacers as well he's a shot blocker great defensive player that can stretch his game out on the perimeter I really don't think the Pacers can go wrong with either guy there and even looking at a guy like Cam Whitmore if he's on the board I think that he's going to get some consideration for the Indiana Pacers as well but at this point I think that Jairus Walker is the safe prediction for them. So, Brett, before we let you go, my last one is, what does the rest of your day look like? You know, as a national guy covering the NBA draft, I imagine your screen time goes through the roof this time of year. What do you do between now and the draft, and, and how important is it to just make sure you stay on top of things? Well, there's a few things. The first is making sure I don't have too many tabs open to the point where my computer completely fries and crashes because that would not be a good thing at all. The second thing is making sure that my phone charger is right next to me at all times. And then the other thing is making sure I have the laptop charger ready and accessible. So it's it's a great time. I love the draft. It's a, a great time for these prospects to hear their name called. Great time for college fan bases and NBA fans alike to really embrace this new era of basketball coming into the league. And then obviously after midnight or 1 o'clock, whenever the draft decides to end, you have that whole frenzy of who's signing where with the undrafted guys and obviously guys signing summer league contracts and training camp contracts. So it's just one thing after another. And the best part about this time of the year is that Las Vegas summer league is right around the corner. So I I can't wait to get out there for that. Brett, will you be there tonight? I will not be in attendance for the draft tonight, no. It, too hectic of a, sure. of a schedule. And, of course, it, it's going to be a rainy day up here in, in the bright and sunny northeast, as always. So much <laughs> rather stay inside for this one. Can't blame you, Brett. Thank you very much for making time for us. We look forward to following along, and I'm sure we'll have reactions from you as we get closer to the opening of free agency here just around the corner. Absolutely. You guys take it easy. Brett Siegel. You can follow him on Twitter at Brett Siegel, NBA, National NBA Insider and Reporter. You can find his work at Clutch Points and the Clutch Points app. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. 
You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Since six hours away from the start of the NBA draft, Indiana Pacers is still holding that seventh pick with James Boyd. I'm Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison along for the ride as well. It would not be a draft day without a conversation with our next guest, one of the very best in the business, a part of ESPN's College Game Day, and one of our favorites. It's the coach, Seth Greenberg, live from New York City. Seth, how we doing? Jimmy, what's up, my brother? Life, coach. Talking to you on draft day. Nothing better than that. Oh, yeah, that's big. That's big. I understand that. It's a highlight of some people's lives. <laughs> uh, we're we're taking pictures, documenting the moment. It, it's gonna be gonna be hung up in the house, coach. It's gonna be gonna, gonna be a great thing for certain. How, how are you doing? How's how's New York? New York's good. New York's good. Got in here last night. Had a great dinner. Peter Lugas. Then uh, we did a little first take this morning, and now uh, just kind of locking in uh, for tonight. I want to start at the top of the board, Coach, and I want to get your perspective on him. I know you've you've stressed it multiple times throughout you know your hits on Sports Center and the different interviews that you've done. But when you look at the lock of the draft in terms of what's going to happen at one with Victor Wembanyama being taken by the Spurs, as you've evaluated him over the year and as you've seen his tape, where do you envision the line between the hype and where he's going to have to prove it in this league? Well, he's going to have to prove it no matter what. Right. I mean, you can talk about hype. Once you get a leak, you got to prove it. I mean, you know, you're going to live up to the hype, or the hype is going to be a little unrealistic early on, I think, just because the hype is so, you know, incredibly high. I mean, good amount LeBron didn't go to the playoffs early on. You know, all, you know, I don't think Durant went to the playoffs early on. I mean, even the best players, that he's not making them a, you know, them a, a playoff team, the Spurs. But his potential is ridiculous. Now, you know, I listened to an interview, and I love his interviews. He's so articulate, so bright, so poised. But like him saying, well, I'm not going to put on weight. I'm just going to, you know, you know, people are going to have to realize that skinny is in or whatever he said. Yeah. <laughs> skinny know, up. Like, yeah, I mean, that's going to – I think that's a little unrealistic. But I'm so impressed with his skill set. I think he's going to impact the game defensively. Uh, whether it's on the ball, off the ball, off the ball, it's a shot blocker is ridiculous. Uh, his ability to contest shots away from his man, his ability to play in ball screens, keep it in front, and still challenge shots. Uh, you know, he's going to play four, not five, but he does have David Robinson protected. I mean, you know, Brad Windhorst today said he thought that there's a good chance that uh, that they will trade for another big uh, to protect him some in San Antonio. You know, the Collins kid is not that guy. He's not David Robbins, for sure, but a bigger body, more physical center might be a, a, an option. But, uh, you know, really, really just impressive. I mean, just the way he carries itself. Having said that, everything's a process. That's just the way it is. I mean, we, you know, we, we all want to make it, you know, stuff happen right away. It doesn't happen that way. Coach James Boyd here. First off, uh, pretty cool to talk to you. I've been watching you for years, reading your stuff for years, things of that nature. And then when it comes to Victor, do you expect to even see him in summer league at all? Just considering he just got done playing and the, the, I feel like in recent years and maybe it's more of my generation type of thing where you don't see a lot of the top guys play a lot in summer league anyway. So is, is, would it shock you at all if you just don't see him until the regular season starts? I think he'll play one or two games. I mean, I, I thought something came out the other day that he was going to play. I'm not sure he was going to play in Vegas, but I thought he was going to play in Sacramento. But, mm. you know, look, you know, San Antonio's been known to, you know, they're the uh, architect of, of load manager. I think of <laughs> Ka- Kawhi Leonard way back in the day. Um, I think he's got to get some. Uh, and again, everyone overreacts to Summer League because Summer League, you're playing against a bunch of guys that are probably not going to be in the league except yeah. for two guys on, on a roster. But maybe getting a little bit of a feel, uh, getting put in uh, some semblance of system, some semblance of defensive system. Uh, but I, you know, look, Greg Popovich is going to evaluate that once he gets him in the gym. He will sure practice for summer league. Uh, whether you know how much he'll play or if he plays, uh, you know that'll be the the big question. And then when you look at this draft class as a whole, especially that top five. I don't know if we've ever seen it be that diverse where they're coming from different areas of the world and different leagues and things like that. But for college basketball purposes, the top guy, at least in the, all the mock drives, has been Brandon Miller. 
and what do you think of his game and how it could translate? I know he's been saying that his goat is Paul George. You see a lot of similarities there, but what do you think of him? Yeah, I think that Paul George, Kevin Durant are comparisons. Um, you know, I've been on Durant uh, at the beginning because of his ability. Remember, Durant at Texas, not Durant in the NBA, <laughs> you know, towards the end of his career or, you know, mid to end of his career. But, you know, you know, he's 6'9", 7'1", wingspan, shoots the ball, was a high school point guard, very good vision, competitive defensively, got to get stronger, got to get to maybe compete a little bit harder offensively off the ball. But I, I absolutely love his game. I absolutely love his game. I love his feel. Um, I did the South Carolina game after that horrific tragedy. And, uh, you know, uh, I was impressed with how he handled himself and how he played. So, uh, you know, the the research I've done has been, you know, that that uh, he's, you know, a kid that comes to practice every day, works his tail off, and is a good teammate. So uh, I think he's going to be a really good NBA player. Seth Greenberg with us on the Fan Midday Show. You can follow him on Twitter at Seth on Hoops. Covers the NBA at large as a college basketball analyst. You can hear him, of course, tonight covering the draft for ESPN Radio and coach for the observations that you've seen from another player that's potentially linked to the Pacers. But again, I know these mocks, we take them with a grain of salt. We trash them by the time the draft starts. But (laughs) Cam Whitmore's fall has been fascinating to me. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean anything from a team's perspective, but he was a player that I enjoyed at Villanova that I think if he's there would be an interesting piece here in Indiana. What has the tape shown and just the body of work from that freshman season of Cam Whitmore? Well, he didn't have a big body of work. That's the biggest problem. You know, he was injured, missed the preseason, uh, had huge USA basketball success, uh, physical body, going to be an elite defender, uh, you know, uh, uh, an active physical rebounder on the offensive end, can shoot it, not a great shooter, downhill driver. Uh, you know, can you compliment Benedict Matherin for you guys? You know, I don't know, but I wouldn't look, put much into the draw. You know, right. There's so much misinformation going on right now that it's, you know, you never know exactly where it's at. I mean, you know, the Thompson twins are in that conversation as well. And, you know, they're the biggest diff in the, thir- in, in the draft. And I think they're really talented. I think they're great kids. But overtime elite is an exhibition team. You know, that's what they are. Right. I mean, that's, those are exhibitions. Those aren't college basketball games. That isn't G League Ignite. Those are exhibitions. I mean, go watch them and and, and, and tell me they're not. How much so, from? You know, go ahead. You know, they, they, and they don't shoot it great. What are the ramifications with the Thompson twins kind of being the the first or second set of this overtime elite experiment? Obviously, it's not something that's going to be answered year one, but the ramifications for pathways for players to get to the draft if there's not success for the Thompson twins over the course of five or six years. Yeah, I think over time my league's going to be taken over by the NBA is my gut feeling. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's part of the master plan of the NBA is to create this alternative so guys don't go out of the country and have more control over it. I mean, there's, there's going to be some great stories from overtime elite. I think Thompson twins will be a good story, but there's also a lot of kids that decided to do that and passed up on going to college and, uh, have nowhere to go back to. So, uh, but I, I think the long, long play for the overtime uh, program is that the NBA takes it over. I really believe that. That way, they can control the narrative. Right, coach. Another name we've seen sort of being a pretty good fit, at least in theory on paper, is Taylor Hendricks out of UCF. I don't know if he would have been a name. Yeah, I was just going to ask about it. I don't know if I, he would have been a name that popped up in the top 10 projections going into the season, you know, last season. What did you think about just the rise that he has and, and maybe why he's had that rise with some of the versatility he can bring to the NBA floor? Size, athleticism, and shot making. You got to have shot. Man, like to me, you got you to have shot making. I think that's, that's the, the, the differentiator in all, to me, these the, these draft analysis. Uh, I'm going to take a shot maker. The league is a league of shot makers. It's an offensive league until you get to the playoffs. But Taylor Hendricks is a big-time three-point shooter who has closing speed and, and ability to protect some of the rim. Uh, he's a 3-and-D guy for sure. Uh, he he could play you know four. Uh, doesn't have a beat-you-off-the-bounce game yet, but you know shot fake one dribble or two dribbles. But he's got size, athleticism, length, and he makes shots. 
and then kind of take a, a big picture approach and, and really go down memory lane a little bit. But what was it like? I know you see the other trades going down in the NBA, Marcus Smart going from Boston to Memphis. What is it like to see a player that you watched in college? You know, and, and I believe I, I remember when Marcus Smart went back to school, it was like the craziest thing in the world. Like, why would he go back? But what have you seen from him and his development and maybe just seeing a player from afar a little bit and seeing them kind of grow into their own and becoming, you know, a defensive player of the year type of player and someone who can obviously help a lot of different franchises now going to the Memphis Grizzlies? Oh, you know, it's such a huge pickup for the Grizzlies. He's a grown man. He coaches a locker room. He hopefully if it allows him. He teaches John Morant how to be a pro. He helps him deal with his demons. He keeps him away from the static that could tear his career down. Uh, you know, and uh, it's just an absolutely huge pickup, huge pickup for Memphis. Uh, you know, you got Jared Jackson, now you got Marcus Smart, a great perimeter defender, obviously rim protector, multi-positional defender. Uh, and you've got someone in the locker room uh, that basically can set the tone. So uh, I think it's a big loss for uh, the Celtics, but, you know, they didn't think they could continue moving on. They do have good leadership in Brogdon and Al Hoffer. They bring Pazingas. Now they can play two bigs at some time. They can play two totally different bigs with Pazingas and, and, uh, and Robert Williams. Uh, Al Hoffer's not getting any younger. Uh, I think he'll, he'll be very good in ball screens and DHOs with with Brown and Tatum. Uh, and if Brown and Tatum learn to make each other better, that could be you know an absolutely huge, huge, huge trade for them. Plus, they're getting draft choices, so uh, I think it's good for Memphis. I think it's good for uh, you know good for for the Celtics, and I think that Washington gets a bunch of money off the books. Coach, what do you think of Gigi Jackson, the youngest player in the class? A lot of people speculate that had he stayed another year, he, he could have definitely increased his draft stock in 2024, but he wanted to take the leap now. Clearly with that young age, there's plenty of time to grow and develop, but what did that short stint in South Carolina tell about the 18-year-old? He was great in the game I did. I mean, you know, he's got to learn how to play hard all the time. He's got an incredible uh, upside, uh, a little bit immature, which you expect from an 18-year-old, but an incredible number of things he can do in terms of his skill set. I think he's going to be a steal in the second round. I think a steal because, he, you know, what he is is he's a first-round draft that's going to drop to the second round. So, Coach, when you look at a player who could be a steal in this draft, I know you just alluded to it there with Gigi Jackson, but are there other players where you're like, okay, this guy might be flying under the radar, but I do think – I'm higher on him than most, or in a couple of years, he could be someone who's impacting the NBA team. Yeah, I think Jaime Jaquez, grown man, going to go to a good team, fit guy. I'm big on on four-year guys and fit guys. I think that's a really important thing. You know, you look, there's a lot of those older guys, you know, the Villanova guys, the Virginia guys, that stick it out, and, and you know what? All of a sudden, they're helping teams win. You know, they've got a maturity about them. I think Jalen Hurtsifino's a is a guy that's probably undervalued. I think you can plug and play him right away. And I think he could be a very, very good player. Uh, I really like him. Uh, But Inski, the kid from Santa Clara, I think is going to be interesting because of his shot making and his passing. If you speak to Robin Yama, he's going to tell you Kulabale is is a guy that's under the radar, you know, under the radar player. Uh, You know, I don't know what Derek uh, Derek Whitehead is, but, you know, if he goes late, Compared to where he was projected early, I think that you know he's a potential, you know, potential steal per se. Um, so I think there, like I, maybe I'm a little crazy. Nick Smith has dropped, but he's a shot maker that we didn't see the best of. Like, like my thing is, after three, you know what, you you might get some steals <laughs> because after three, you could. Everyone's got a little bit of an S in their game. Coach, you mentioned Jalen Hutchifino. Let's throw Trace Jackson Davis in there as well. As you look yeah, at the range, as you look at the range that they're at, like James mentioned, for steal or for value. Let's look at fit. When you look at where they're projected for Trace, it's toward the back half of the first round, anywhere from likes of Denver, Utah, and for Hutchifino, Atlanta, a couple other spots. I guess I don't think he'll fall as far to LA to make some moves, but yeah, I think Trace Jackson Davis is more. But most people have him in the second round, which 
you know, because he can't shoot it. Right. If he could shoot the ball to 15 feet, it would be all over. Uh, but I, I think he can run. He's committed defensively. He's got a little bit of rim protection. He can pass. Uh, he rebounds the ball. Uh, and you know what? You can utilize him in that elbow as a driver, a passer, a short roller, who can one dribble and punch it on your head. I, I, I think he's undervalued. Uh, I, I, I like Trick Shaft Davis. I think he's I think he's been a guy that's complained the league a long time. Now he doesn't shoot like you know, I used to say Sabonis, but he doesn't shoot like Sabonis. Is there a perfect fit for Trace or for Jalen Huchifino? Yeah, Jalen Huchifino, his fit is anyone that, that is looking for a hybrid guard or what I call a ball guard. Uh you know, which is a ton of teams in the league. I think he shoots it well enough. And then for uh, you know Trace Jackson Davis, you know, you know to me he's a culture guy, you know. And I think it goes back to my same thing: you win with character, you win with culture, you win with body, and you win with role identification. Uh, <laughs> could he be Aaron Gordon? Could he eventually learn to shoot the ball so he could be something like Aaron Gordon? You know, he does a lot of those things. He just doesn't shoot it. Last one for me, Coach. When it comes to Victor Wembanyama, the hype that's been around him. Who are the players that come to mind for you who have had Jackson. that level of hype? Oh, hype? Oh, it's LeBron. It's no no doubt LeBron. I mean, that's that's 100%. LeBron had greater hype. If you think about the shoe contract. That was my next question, yeah. You know, you think about the shoe contract. You think about uh, the games on ESPN. Remember, back in LeBron, there was no, there was no Twitter. Yeah. There was no Instagram. There was 8,000 blogs. And he still had crazy hype. Coach, last thing on my end before I let you go. If they go with, let's just say, Walker at seven, I, I know you dove into him a little bit already, but where's the biggest area that he needs to improve to be the type of player the Pacers could view as a second or third best player on a, on a real contender in four to five years? Yeah, Jared Walker's got a, you know, he's got a, like, like he, 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 when he works defensively, he's obviously a multiple positional guy. He's physical, he's strong, uh, you know, he showed the ability to face up and shoot it. Although I, you know, when I was at his practice, I watched practice for two days. I'd like to see him in a mid post rip, go elbow, go and be definitive in attacking the basket. Um, and just consistency, consistency, obviously playing for Kelvin helped him, but he consistency, uh, you know, practice. I went, they had to kind of put a foot in his rear end a bunch, a couple of times. He's young. He doesn't, you know, you got to redefine playing hard to beat, and he's still learning that. Coach, always appreciate you making time for us. Looking forward to hearing you on the coverage tonight. And uh, do me a favor while you're in New York. Can you try to get our boy Aaron Judge back on the field, please? Could you just do that for me? Yeah, really. We got, well, we got, we got two right now. We just got to keep on playing the Mariners. Exactly. As long as the Mariners are every day, we'll be fine. Yeah. Enjoy the draft, Coach. Appreciate you as All always. Right, All right, buddy. <laughs> it's the coach, Seth Greenberg. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Seth on Hoops.